listening. You're listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. I'm Tim Fredericks, your host, uh, along with my co-host, Fran Gavin, and uh, we welcome everyone to Leadership Matters. And uh, this evening, we're very fortunate to continue our series of shows that are curated by doctoral students here at Centenary University. This evening, our uh, two doctoral students who are curating this show uh, are Deb Grigoletti and Patrick McQueenie. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Deb and Patrick uh, for introduction of our very special guests this evening and on with the show. Hi, everybody. Um, today we're going to be actually, we are we were welcoming Superintendents David Mango, James Jancarelli, and Richard Tonko into the studio. We were, um, the focus of our conversation today is going to be the changes in the roles of superintendents and the ability to provide district leadership. How have the impacts of the pandemic and national politics and other factors changed the role for each of the school leaders? So we'll take a minute and we'll introduce each of our guests. We can't thank them enough for joining us. First is Mr. Mango. Mr. Mango has a master's degree from Urban Educational and Leadership from Jersey City College. Mr. Mango's educational career spans over 25 years, with 16 of those years being in administration. He started as a special education teacher in high school, and then in 2005 made the leap into administration. He held numerous administrative positions, including assistant principal, principal, and finally superintendent of schools. His first CSA position was at the Henry P. Becton Regional High School. He then moved into the superintendency at Hackettstown School District. After his first year, he became the shared superintendent at both Hackettstown and Great Meadow Meadows Regional School District. He was shared for eight years, dealing with three municipalities, two boards of education, and two bargaining units. In 2020, he resumed being the sole superintendent at the Hackettstown Public School District. Next would be James Giancarelli. Mr. Giancarelli has a master's degree in educational leadership, Caldwell College, a master's degree in educational technology from Ramapo College. Mr. Giancarelli became a superintendent of Morris Hills Regional District in August 2009. Prior to his current position, he was the chief administrator for the Carlstadt East Rutherford Board of Education and the principal at the Henry P. Becton Regional High School. He held various uh, administrative responsibilities at the high school, and the district level and was a teacher of mathematics and computer science. And last but not least, of course, is Dr. Richard Tomko. Dr. Tomko has, has had numerous administrative responsibilities during his 20-year career in educational administration. He has been a building principal at the middle school and secondary levels and responsible for the district-wide curriculum assessment, innovative program initiatives and technology as well as professional development as an assistant superintendent for curriculum and instruction. Dr. Tomko has served in the district in additional administrative positions, such as department supervisor, assistant principal, the director of and the director of athletics. He began his career in education, teaching high school science and middle and high school English in both private and public school systems. Dr. Tomko holds a master's degree in educational administration, as well as a degree of Doctor of Philosophy with a concentration in educational leadership, management, and policy from Seton Hall University. Additional doctor, additionally, Dr. Tonko has also earned a Master's of Judas Prudence degree in ch Children's Law and Policy from Loyola University in Chicago School of Law, a graduate certificate in the Brain Teaching and Learning from the John Hopkins University, and a graduate certificate in community and economic development from the, the Pennsylvania State University, a certificate in leadership for his professional studies at Harvard University as well. Again, I welcome all three of you. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you, Debbie, for those great introductions. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us this evening. Um, all three of you are join, are, were invited due to your extensive accomplishments and experience, and we really wanted to focus on your thoughts with the pandemic and how has that impacted your role? Um, what are the large things that you have seen changed as a superintendent now versus five or 10 years ago? And I'll kind of leave it up to whoever wants to jump in. Well, I guess I'm probably the oldest out of the three. So uh, I'll just jump in right now, if that's okay. Uh, the first thing uh, for me uh, at Morris Hills Regional District, what has changed for us is, is simply trying to figure out 
scheduling what's best for students in terms of how to get them in the building. I think a lot of things have changed for us in trying to make sure that we're providing a safe environment and a, a productive learning environment for our students while being cognizant of the fact that we're in a pandemic. Uh, a lot of things have changed. We've uh, probably, and I won't speak for Dave or, or for Rich at all, other than the fact that we've done more about scheduling cohorts, transportation issues, as well as testing environments for COVID. Um, it's really changed a lot. I think if you haven't been a superintendent the last couple of years, um, you probably might not recognize the position. Yeah, I agree with you, Jim. Um, not to steal uh, Dave or Jim's thunder, but I mean, I think, you know, speaking about the curriculum and assessment and cohorting, all these things are, are you know, things that we had to learn as well uh, as superintendents uh, and with the, with some of some of these great um, leaders and teachers that we had to help us through it. Um, and, and again, you know, we were going through our own personal issues and, and different things that we had to follow on county levels local community engagement levels, you know, every community was different. Who wanted to, you know, come back to school before others? And, you know, some some um, more urban areas versus more rural areas were, were going through different levels of the pandemic. So there was, every town looked different. So I think the, you know, to answer uh, the question of how it impacted us overall, um, if I could just add to what Jim was just saying, um, I think it impacts everything, like even now, I mean, some, some of the supply chain demands, um, you know, um, you know, su supplies, things that are distributed, things that are still in harbors that can't come off ships, um, labor force, you know, I mean, we can't get teachers. I mean, back in the day, you know, if you had a phys ed opening, uh, when I first started 20 something years ago, phys ed was, you know, was easy to fill, you know, quote unquote, you know, get coaches. Now it's hard even filling those positions. Um, so so I, I think to open up these buildings again, dealing with, you know, mask issues, dealing with, you know, teachers and their concerns and their needs, uh, learning different platforms, virtual versus, you know, in, in school, quarantine issues, all these things that people are going through at home as, as a superintendent or as a, a chief school administrator, uh, it runs the gamut of almost every part of society, everything, like I said, from some, from supplies all the way down to what we probably signed up for originally was that, you know, curriculum and assessment piece. So, so it's really is just a different, it's a different world, you know, sitting in these chairs. So. Hey, Dave, uh, both Jimmy and Rich have spoken about, you know, the different cohorts and schedules and Rich even pointed out specifically teachers and staff and how it affects everybody. What have you seen change in terms of the relationship you have with labor relations or personnel with associations, unions, that sort of thing, given the pandemic? Okay, well, again, I agree with both Rich and Jimmy, and I, I just want to put it out there since I, these opportunities are fleeting. I had the good fortune of uh, growing up with Rich in our hometown and playing bowl, so I know him for many years, so I feel proud and honored to be here with him. And for Jimmy, he hired me and drafted me, and I worked for him and with him in Beckton Regional um, and learned quite a bit from him that I brought to Hackettstown and then Great Meadows and now back just solely into Hackettstown. So I just think that's pretty important considering the group that's here. So. I agree with both with what Rich and Jimmy shared, but I'd also say it's bigger than just the pandemic. I mean, we've seen this coming. Honestly, the, the, the role shifted once Columbine happened in 1999. And then we saw how superintendents became between Columbine with safety and security. We're not law enforcement. I mean, some might be previously in law enforcement. We didn't have that background. Then it turns into technology and MySpace and all these other things that occurred. And now we lead into a, then you have HIV and now you have a pandemic. And really the role of the superintendent is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It just never ends. And um, we have to take on the, the complexity of knowing as, as both Jimmy and Rich shared, uh, you know, science and <laughs> and cleanliness and sanitation, along with labor, all those things. So as far as your question specifically, Pat, to labor, I think it just intensified. Although I, I'm, I'm really happy to share here that uh, we did not have one issue. Our teachers did not call sick outs. None of our staff did. Everybody came in prepared to work. Uh, when you talk about cohorting, cohorting, I would say last year in the height of the pandemic, 
Our K-8 program, we utilized everybody's certification in our middle school, so our students were physically in five days a week, half day, and then in the afternoons was virtual. And our elementaries actually flipped. Our staffing was phenomenal, where we saw our elementary programs run a.m. and p.m. shifts. And the students who were in the AM physically were then, the, the PM students were, were learning virtually and streaming in and vice versa. But honestly, um, it, it intensified, but I'd like to believe it strengthened it because more often than not, it's not until you have a crisis that you really know what you're made of personally and professionally. So, um, but I, I, I do observe and respect and appreciate that in, in other places, that might not be the case. Um, but I could tell you in my experience here, it's been nothing but positive. So and I'm happy to share that publicly. Yeah, I think that's an important thing that you talked about has been my experience as well in my role. But I have heard in other school districts, a communities being very frustrated throughout the pandemic and possibly having a negative view of that. Have any of you experienced anything either from your boards or the communities that cast kind of a more negative light on the efforts of teachers during the pandemic and how do you ba uh, balance those issues and needs with being supportive of our staff and continuing to motivate them to do the great job that they do i'll be honest last year when we were going through this and um, i think all of us were going through this because we weren't sure what it was going to look like coming back in and when we went out on march 13th nobody was sure what it would look like when we came back and nobody was sure when we were coming back. So I know there was a lot between July and August of last year, uh, trying to get teachers back to school and helping them feel safe and comfortable. And we were very fortunate. We worked very well with our association. Uh, I, I have very, very good leaders in my buildings and in my district. So we were able to have meetings and, and, you know, virtual coffees with our association, our parents and everybody else to say, listen, Here's the level of comfort we're gonna have. This is what we're gonna do. And I think it was so important just to get started. Because once you got started, I think everybody took a deep breath and said, okay, we're, we're gonna be okay. We're gonna get through this. I mean, we did have to shut down uh, working with the Department of Health a couple of times because we had you know several outbreaks and it was a little bit different than what we do today. But again, like Dave and Rich both said too, I think working really close with your administrative team your community and your association really, really helped. Our association did a great job. Uh, and again, having had to teach in that environment was not an easy uh, task in a hybrid model. Yeah, I, I, I'll piggyback, I'm sorry, if there was gonna be a follow-up. I, I could piggyback on that um, with uh, what Jim was saying as well with, you know, but I, I think to just take a step back for a second, you know, when, when this did happen in March, it was, you know, unknown to everybody what would happen, like Jim said, like, you know, two weeks. Oh, we're going to be closed for two weeks and just to clean. I don't know if you, you know, we all remember that, right? We're going to just do a heavy cleaning and that was it. We we're going to come back and, you know, and then, and then, you know, and then the reality was, is this is, you know, this is, this is crazy. You know, this is, we don't know what's happening here. And, and the, the hospitals were filling up and, and friends were getting sick and our colleagues, some of our colleagues, you know, young colleagues passed away, you know, and, you know, and we were all affected at home and, and we were still coming in, you know, everybody was off of, you know, we were feeding people and we had to come to work and, you know, so, so there was a lot of things happening there, but the most, you know, most incredible thing I think from all of this, which is really interesting in, in all of our years together, I guess we could probably really sit back and, and, and talk about this, you know, some more, but it took a pandemic like this for certain places to, to push forward and be innovative, right? Like, you know, we, I was a proponent years ago about, you know, just doing virtual days for snow days, you know, and I, I know, you know, people can kind of Google me and see all the stuff I said about that. And I, I was like, listen, why, why are we, you know, giving up all these days, you know, and, you know, but, but no, we, we, you know, the, the, the state was, was very adamant. Nope. We have to be in person. We can't do anything virtual or, you know, one-to-one -one initiatives. Nobody could find money to get, to get all the, the computers we needed for everyone or, you know, uh, Wi-Fi and, and all these different things. And it took something like this to show that leaders in our roles and, and, our, and all of our constituent groups and stakeholders could all pull together at a time like this and pull off what we did. I mean, some of the things our teachers did were just incredible, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't mean turning on a computer and, and um, you know, bad, bad enough, you know, trying to hold the attention span of, of students for all that time. 
you know, and dealing with parents at home and all these their own issues and internet issues and all that other stuff. But you know, just the fact that keeping keeping communities connected during the you know arguably the worst time in our lives uh, where things were uncertain. I mean, it really was an incredible resilience on the fact of all of our people. And I think it, you know, I think a lot of other um, careers, you know, again, not to not to disparage anybody, but I, I think a lot of people, you know, forgot about educators doing what we did to kind of try to hold everything together, you know, and, and again, it wasn't so much about the math or the English at the time, which obviously we know is important, but it was just to try to get some sense of continuity for our kids who, you know, were going through stuff that they were really scared about, you know, we're seeing that now, right? We're seeing that as, as, as kids traditionally are coming back to schools and they're having greater social emotional learning issues. There's, there's more aggression. I don't, I don't mean uh, aggression where it's that volatile, but, you know, kids are now starting to, you know, to learn to, you know, uh, you know, contemplate with each other and, and, and being in, a, in a, uh, cafeterias again and, you know, all these things. I, I always say to, to people, you know, we as superintendents, the entire juvenile population of our towns are in our schools throughout the day. Things are going to happen, you know, just this is the way it goes. So, so I think there's a whole big thing when we talk about labor and and uh, innovation and all those things that we've been doing. And uh, you know, I think it's it's easy to forget some of that. But but I think it's important now as we try to make this leap back into some sense of normalcy that uh, that we remember those people that were in the trenches with us um, and continue to thank them for all they're doing. And, and know we just have to try to move forward. And and it's still tough. You know, we're still wearing masks. We still have you know anti-mask issues and. And, you know, who knows if we're going to have to shut down again and, and kids on quarantine. Quarantine right now to me is the most, um, I don't know, is the craziest thing I think I've ever experienced. Um, we have we have some kids now that I'm that I'm quarantined that, that are barely in class and they've never been sick. They've just been quarantined as close contact. So so it's again, I think we still have a long way to go. But I think getting here was uh, remembering how we got here is the most important part. The, only, the one thing I'd add, and I agree with you and Jimmy both, Rich, but the one thing I would add is actually the flip side of the coin, where I'm, I'm very disappointed that um, that the DOE decided to move away from allowing us, after dealing with this crisis, the flexibility about making those judgment calls uh, to avoid delayed openings or early dismissals, because we know that what challenges they present for parents and communities, to take away the ability to provide the remote instruction. And by the way, we all know that uh, you know virtual learning is nothing new, and if you could get a doctorate online, which has been happening for the, this entire century, why can't students in grades seven through twelve be able to take active uh, remote instructional classes? Considering what we just dealt with and the success that we saw from it, so I'm a little actually disappointed uh, in the stance from the department, but um, that might be a conversation for another newscast. And this may be a good time for us to take a break. Uh, you've been listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. We will be right back. And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. Uh, we are here in the studio with uh, our two doctoral students, Deb Grigoletti and Patrick McQueenie. And Pat, I'm going to turn it back to you to continue the conversation that uh, started before the break. Thank you, Dr. Fredericks. I just something that uh, both Dr. Tom Coe and Mr. Mango touched on was the innovation that we saw. And uh, I truly am impressed at what our teachers have been able to do in light of the pan pandemic, not just the reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also making connections with kids. And some of the other things we saw, Mr. Giancarelli talked about scheduling and the cohorting and a lot of innovation in that area as well. So I guess my question is, you guys have been around the block. You've seen things come and go. We have all this great innovation now. Where are we going with it? Do you think it's going to peter out as the pandemic slowly subsides or we turn our attention to other things? Or are there things you see that are probably going to be with us and kind of change the landscape of education? I could follow up on that. And uh, I can tell you what's happened because, again, from uh, Rich and, and Dave talking about the innovations that have happened in the classroom, I think we've all witnessed that. Uh, I can tell you what a lot of our teachers are continuing to do is video lessons and put it on Google Classroom so that if students are quarantined, it's not all my teachers, there's many of them, 
the kids are able to see that lesson. And uh, we've also contracted with a third party to do 24-7 tutoring online for students. Now, again, I'm only dealing with grades 9 through 12, so it's a little bit different. So if kids, for any uh, reason, have to be quarantined, they can get everything off of Google Classroom. They can get online with a tutor through um, the third party that we're using to be able to stay as current as they can. So I think a lot of the teachers, I think you're going to see this again, become something that's part of regular teaching and education. Because after going through this, I don't think you just throw everything out the window and say, okay, uh, we're back into, you know, into our buildings all the time. I, I think this is something that's going to continue to evolve. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing what develops through the teacher preparation universities that we do have as well as what our teachers who have the experience are able to bring to the table. Yeah, I, I would agree with you a lot of those things. I think one of the disappointments I share is, as Mr. Mango alluded to it, is the idea that we've shown we can do virtual instruction effectively, specifically in short burst. You know, maybe it's not the long-term solution for everyone, for the masses, but, you know, do we see uh, the state coming around and supporting virtual snow days? Do we see that happening, or is it too early to tell, or is that issue dead in your guys' opinions? I would say we have to wait till after November 2nd, you know, quite frankly. After, after November 2nd, we'll probably know a little bit more. Um, but, but again, let's take it a step further, and like everybody had shared here, why not mid-year courses, grade 7 through 12? And, and Jimmy had shared, you know, yes, he's dealing specifically with the high schools, but I know with, with Rich, he has elementaries and middles just like I do. So we know what the research says about young children pre-K pre through 6 specific and then pre-K through 8 even more so. Uh, being in the classroom physically, but as they get older, as our students uh, age out and age up, there should be some room. So I don't think anything will go anywhere. I think we'll continue to be innovative. Um, and maybe for future leaders who are currently classroom teachers and instructional leaders that you know have lived this from a different uh, scope and thread and, and uh, continued on with innovation that aspire to be leaders uh, in our positions one day, Maybe that will help. You know, I think our media centers and any any kind of technological platform we could invest in, in the flipped classroom approach and all those things. We in Pat, you remember this from from when you first walked through the door in Hackettstown, what we used to to mimic and and talk about and trips to McDonald's um, for flipped instruction, McDonald's Corporation. The rest of the world is continuing to move forward, so I think we'll fall back if we don't continue to push forward. But time will tell. Yeah, and if I could just add one one minute, uh, one more thing. The um, you know the innovation piece is also you know important now because we we learned how we could even you know mobilize to to enhance equity and access too. You know, so like for example, there's classes now just being able to do virtual component of something. There's classes that I can provide my students here in Belleville that I never would be able to do before because you know I just couldn't get a teacher and didn't get enough interest or you know, just just uh, even languages, different languages are, are tapping in. So I, I think uh, I think it definitely is, you know, like I think, you know, Dave said, it's been, you know, doctoral programs use it. It's been around for, for a century. You know, it, it's it's about time that, you know, unfortunately it took a pandemic, but it's about time that we kind of took this leap. And uh, and I think it's definitely here to stay. So our best bet now as leaders is to try to really grow, make it grow or grow it so that it's, you know, better than it ever, ever, anybody ever thought it could be. So I, so I think that, that should be the next step. That should be the next push. That should be the, the next pedagogical, you know, um, renaissance, if you, if, if you will, uh, in, uh, especially in the state of New Jersey. Has anyone noticed, we were talking about the um, pandemic and the change um, to your teachers and, and the community, but has anyone noticed a change to how you communicate with your boards? Um, has that relationship changed since the pandemic started? It has for us. We used to have our committee meetings in person at the board level, and we're not a, a committee of the whole. We, we do uh, groups of small groups of board members on committees, and we've changed that and we've kept that to Zoom meetings now, which again provides them an opportunity to do it from instead of coming into our board office, that they can do it from home. So I think it's allowed them to participate a little bit more. And uh, yet, I, I think the board relations is, 
they used to come and maybe uh, before a board meeting, spend some time with you. And uh, I think a lot of that has changed a little bit because now it's everybody's a little concerned uh, and making sure that, you know, everybody's got masks on now too. So our board meeting structure has changed quite a bit for us. And uh, the committee meetings have changed too. So that's, that's a little bit different for us. Yeah. And if I could just, you know, kind of jump on that. Um, I, I, you know, yeah, the, 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 the makeup obviously changed because of restrictions and whatnot. So, so all of that has happened and it really did change, you know, our ability to, to meet. Uh, but even as like an administrative team, you know, I, I can now easily zoom or Google meet, you know, meetings with my principals when before traditionally, cause I, I, I know the three of us kind of grew up together and we kind of, definitely grew up in administration together. You know, the old school way was always, you know, we all, all the principals had to come out of their buildings, right? And they had to all go to the board office and we all had to sit around a conference room table. And, you know, and, and that's made it, you know, the connections a little bit easier now. And even with some of those board committees, et cetera. But, but I, I would even take it a step for, further about the board. And I would say that, you know, every superintendent was charged with dealing with this differently. And Dave said it earlier with regard to some of the support that we did or lack of support with support we didn't get from the DOE and, and not to, you know, not to bash to anybody up there because I know, you know, a lot of this was politically charged too, but, you know, leaving it to local, local decisions is important um, with many things. But when you're talking about overall safety through a pandemic where data was important, et cetera, leaving things up to board members who are elected officials who also have their own personal, you know, beliefs, um, feelings, uh, backing, constituency, et cetera, you know, it was very difficult for all, for, I'll speak for us, but for us to do. So knowing that the decision, regardless of what a board member thought, the decision lied upon us. It wasn't it wasn't a board vote. I mean, some superintendents had the board back them or whatnot in a vote, but closing schools and, you know, doing some of these other things was basically the decision of the superintendent, you know? So, so I think that was, that was really an interesting time in, in, you know, in board politics, you know, or, um, you know, how, how, uh, how superintendents work with boards, because, you know, there were a lot of different emotions flying around, you know, who, who had certain beliefs and certain ideologies, et cetera. So, so it was a difficult time there too. And I think a lot of people aren't talking about that. You know, a lot of people aren't talking about the pressures on us politically with all this, you know, the unions wanted to open or close, the parents wanted to open or close, the board members wanted to open or close, you know, and, and, and we were stuck with making local decisions. So, so yeah, the board relations, you know, were strained at times. And I think sometimes at sometimes they strengthened a little bit uh, when we, when we were finally uh, meant to be seen as doing the right thing. Um, but, but again, um, you know, we lost a lot of colleagues, uh, not only to COVID, but we lost a lot of colleagues even to retirement because of this. Uh, so it did take a strain, um, on a lot of, a lot of individuals in our, in our, in our chairs. Yeah. And I, I would say that, uh, I agree with you both once again, again, we, we all lived this simultaneously, but I would say, uh, I, with, with what Jimmy said, regard to committee meetings here in Hackettstown, our committee meetings remain. And I've seen nothing but a positive end to that. At the same time, uh, my, my admin meetings, like Rich had, had talked about, they're all remote. Our principal forums, we saw five times the amount during the height of the pandemic, and then even at the back end of last school year, of parent and community input and participation. So our principal forums will remain remote. And even now, I mean, we were back in public last September. If we, the board and I decided that if, if our students and our staff are in, so are we when it comes to public meetings and things of that nature. And we gave community members the option to Zoom in or come in physically, obviously at the time socially distanced at the six foot mark. But even now, we still, it's not just if you're there physically, we give our community that opportunity to continue to stream in and participate as well as all of our other meetings. So I have a community, I conduct community relations committee meetings prior to public meetings every month. Some of our members on that community meeting, meeting come physically. Those who don't, they attend virtually. This is Greg Reddy has curriculum focus group meetings here in Hackettstown and Mr. O'Leary has uh, our director of special services has his uh, monthly special ed meetings, special education meetings, focus group meetings. They're, they're now attended both physically and virtually simultaneously. So we're gonna to continue to move that forward. 
But as, as Rich had said, uh, I, I would say yes. Obviously, the stress and, and levels of stress for everybody during the height and as it continued with the 24-7 rule in effect really showed, you know, if we, if we spin it in a positive with all that negative and, and the stressors that brought on, that school districts are the hub of the community. Because you would, be, and I, I can't speak for Jimmy or Rich on this, but I will speak for Hackettstown. We were the voice of the community, loud and clear, 24 hours a day. Whether that be by way of emails, alerts, postings, meeting uh, parents at, at our uh, schools, and I'm talking right at the onset at the height on. So we were definitely the hub, and it brought, I would like to believe, the community of Hackettstown together even more. And so I, I don't see that going away. I think for us as leaders, we kind of learned even more about ourselves and our own leadership ability and adaptability than we thought we had. So, you know, we have elections right around the corner and we're speaking about board members and some of the strains that were put on, as Dr. Tomko alluded to, people have different beliefs and ideologies and traditionally the, the board of education races have been um, apolitical. You know, we're not taking political stances. Have you guys seen changes in your districts now with potential candidates filing that seem to be more politically charged? Or do you see more candidates getting involved to support? Because now our families and communities have had inside access to schools. It's been in their living rooms. It's been in their dining rooms. Do you see more support to jump in and support the teachers? What do those Board of Ed races look like for you guys now? Mine are fine. In Hackettstown, no, no, I, I, I know what you're talking about, Pat, and I, I witness it, and in the community in which I live, I see it, um, but not here in Hackettstown. I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm very pleased and proud, and I think that has to do with all the hard work that the board here in Hackettstown and central office and all of our staff, top to bottom, uh, were able to accomplish. So, but it, that's very alive and well in New Jersey but not here in Hackettstown. I would just say, uh, I know for me in, in the Morris Hills Regional District, again, being a regional high school, it's a little different, but consistency, there's been five superintendents in the history of the Morris Hills Regional District. Nobody has left here until they retire. So, uh, you know, I didn't know that until I arrived 13 years ago. So there's a lot of pressure to make sure I, I retire out of uh, Morris Hills Regional District. So the district itself isn't really big on a lot of change. And I've had board members who are original board members at Hiring Man still have three on the board. And a lot of our guys continue to run, and most of the time they run on a post. Uh, again, we've been very fortunate. I, I think I have a great administrative team and a great teaching staff. Our kids perform well. So nobody's out there saying, you know, politically, we got to make this change, we got to make this change. And a lot of times, if you look around in neighboring districts, that's what happens. So that, I mean, it's great news to hear that it's not happening into candidates, you know, in terms of candidates wanting to come out, because we all know the education's focused on our students and how do we meet their needs, et cetera. But have you guys seen it come in anywhere else, the national politics um, across the country in other aspects, whether it's curriculum questions or meetings or anything like that? How have national politics really impacted your roles now as superintendents? Well, the curriculum end of it, yes, but again, I um, and Pat, us working together here, and then Jimmy and I working together. Um, if you get out in front of something and you're transparent and you collaborate with your community, more often than not, people, you know, cooler heads prevail, and folks understand that okay, th this is really the the truth behind what we're hearing, and that's why uh, when we saw this coming, Mrs. Grigoletti and I reached out. It started at our PTA level with our PTA president. And we decided to, to develop uh, curriculum focus groups, to sit there and share the resources, to answer those tough questions. If we don't have some answers, we'll go find them. Um, because again, we're not the smartest people always in the room. We have directives, we have to follow, but not always do we have the answer because one's not provided to us upon receipt of that information. So I'd encourage anybody that if you don't have certain focus groups for parents about those concerns and issues that are out there um, and very real and live that uh, you engage your community, you know, maybe just pull the bandaid, this is the perfect time, pull the bandaid off, have those conversations and move forward by collaboration. And again, that's working for us here in Hackettstown. I can tell you that. I would also say for us, we have uh, information nights. Uh, we're also a school choice district. So 
we like to put on our for our programs, our academics and specialty programs that we do have, we have information nights. And, and it's well attended by not only people in, that want to come in as school choice uh, students and, and their parents, but also our community members want to hear what's going on. So I think those information nights and just being upfront about what we're teaching, what our curriculum is, what our career pathways are, I think is real important and has helped us um, to, again, get the confidence in the community. I think that's a really important thing, similar to what David said as well. And, and you know what, too, Jim, to, to add to it, how about, our staff, how about all of our staff, all of our instructional staff, everywhere, all throughout? There, we, you know, what we found is, is a lot of our staff has concerns about some of the stuff that's out there as well, and rightfully so. I mean, so 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 the changes when when you're talking about politics and driving forces and you know uh, above above the heads of superintendents, there are so many things that are out there that I think uh, still need to be answered and questioned, and we have to take everybody's um, concerns into consideration on how we come to a happy end. Well, this is a good time for us to take a break. Uh, you've been listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. We will be right back. And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. Here this evening with two doctoral students, Deb Gregoletti and Patrick McQueenie. And I'm going to toss it right back to Deb now so she can continue the conversation. Deb? Um, as we've been talking about the pandemic and the effects on education and, and the changes that it's brought, um, I would like to touch upon the educational trends that have changed, um, not only during the pandemic, but over the course of your superintendencies um, and your time in education. Any, any, any trends that you've actually noticed? I'll go first, Jimmy. If, if, um, I would say, Deb, that... Um, just the mandates, the sheer volume of mandates and name changing of state assessments and the expectation rates. And you, know, you saw a lot of this back in 2010, 11, and 12 with the changes by then Governor Christie uh, alongside with the Department of Education. And, and um, I think one that was a very much positive impact to education in the state was actually student growth determining, you know, and seeing student growth a little bit opposite of what we knew. And, and, and Jim and I went through this together in, in Vector Regional about HSPA. So, you know, what, what were, it was 200 was the litmus and, and 200 was a D average or a 67%. And we all know that in education, that's really not acceptable. But how about the student growth? We always talked about that, um, which dates back to what, Jimmy, 2007, when we were together. You know, I, I was very happy to see that for student growth. It took some time for staff to understand what that meant and the concept within the confines of the classroom moves away from grade inflation. And also it's a happy medium as far as the evaluation tools, as far as highly effective, effective, so on and so forth. But I, I, again, I think at the end of the day, good instruction is good instruction. All school leaders and, and educators know what that looks like. And um, then when you tack on, sometimes it becomes a little bit more complicated when it's the instructional technology piece um, and that little bit of freedom where it's not so constructive in the classroom. But I, I would say that, that that's, that's my thought in the last decade or so, that that's, that's where, where I've seen it. For me, what I would say, what I've noticed in the trends, and I've been in administration since 2000, so um, I, I think... A lot of it at first was technology and getting technology in the classroom. Everybody, but nobody exactly knew what to do with it at the time. It was more, oh, we got to get a technology. It's it was a big buzzword. But what I've, I've noticed going through in the last 20, 21 years is the career pathways that we see uh, in our district, too. We have career pathways in, in the math and science magnet area uh, for kids doing independent research learning for career pathways they may, may want to go into, whether it's forensic sciences, whether it's something in engineering or biochemical engineering, anything of that nature. We also have more focus on STEM that, that we watch too uh, in, in our district and throughout. Uh, I've also noticed with the career and technical education, we're trying to get more of those type of things for kids. I think you're seeing the trend that you might see more kids go into uh, different avenues, not just everybody's going to college. Uh, we're still a comprehensive high school in both of my high schools. We have auto shop, we have wood shop, metal shop. A lot of our kids take welding um, that are going into an engineering track. So I think keeping those avenues open are extremely important. And those are the type of things where 
I, I think if you took away a lot of those things, I think a lot of kids might be uh, have to go to a different venue in terms of your technical educational schools. And we tried to do that so our kids could remain home. But I, again, the career pathways I've seen are so different. And I know you wanted to touch upon the social and emotional learning. And, uh, and, and that's really important too, especially now through the pandemic. Exactly. Um, that's, that was my, my next question would be is that, have you noticed a difference in the focus on student support services, um, especially once the pandemic started? And, and are you seeing an uptick in students needing those services within your buildings? I'll go first on that one, and, and I do. And we've had, we've had for the last eight years, Effective School Solutions comes in and works with our students and their families that they do family counseling, small group counseling, um, and working with our kids who are most, uh, most at risk emotionally. And that's determined by our school counselors as well as our child study team. And I think through the pandemic, you're seeing more of that, whether it's been jobs lost or, hey, listen, some of our students, many of our students lost uh, a primary caregiver, whether it was a grandparent, a parent, uh, an aunt and uncle, whoever they're with. And a lot of those things we really need to be cognizant of so we can assist them as they're trying to learn, but yet there's so much going on emotionally that they need that, that help. And we've also, um, again, we've contracted for extra counselors to really assist this year as again the pandemic's still going on and, and we have more kids that are uh providing more services yeah and i would i would agree with jimmy on, on everything he just said uh, and hackettstown has followed suit in, in many of those areas but prior pre-pandemic when we moved to um our away from neighborhood schools traditional neighborhood schools at the elementary and more great and we went to grade-based we implemented elective programs, which actually one of them was it, or is mindfulness. And we've now uh, begun to, to take that up into the middle school. We're looking to enhance that into our high school as part of you know, our, um, our elective program. So absolutely, it, it's, it's heightened tenfold. Uh, as if it didn't before all this, now it certainly has. You know, we, and again, it's in trends. We saw that when HIV came into effect in the 11-12 school year, what that meant. Um, and then it just carries forward. I was going to touch on that, Dave. You bring up HIV, and that was, you know, obviously school since the dawn of time or against any form of harassment, intimidation, or bullying, but it was codified and formalized a number of years ago, and that really shifted some of the efforts in the school districts. Do you guys see this social-emotional piece kind of being that big shift? There's a big call for more support for our students coming out of the pandemic. But as Jimmy mentioned, um, contracting with outside vendors to bring in counselors and therapists, do we see this as now being a staple, that school districts are going to move more towards mental health departments where we'll have psychologists on staff and and you know, putting together programming and therapy, and maybe that even blossoming out to families and communities. I, I definitely do, uh, Pat. And here you were here years ago when we had a riff of, of one of our child study teams. We lost an entire team. Um, and what we did in this budget cycle last year for the 21-22 school years, we brought back that entire team in-house, uh, not only just for, for the purpose to assist with the, with the volume and the numbers of special education, uh, students, but also to assist throughout the district in the buildings when ice, uh, when certain crises arise. At the same time, we hired an additional guidance counselor in our middle school, because as, as if middle school is not difficult enough for a variety of reasons, for this very one particular, when you're talking social emotional, then you add on the, all of the, the, um, the social media. And during the pandemic, that was all there was for, for almost eight, nine months straight. That's all kids, ch children had as a means of, of communication. So I just don't see it going away anytime soon. And I think there's really a concerted effort. And again, we, we kept our eyes open on that when we changed some of our elective programs, but um, I, don't, I don't see it going away anytime soon. I think it has to be enhanced. But again, we need school budgets to assist us in that because anytime, and, and you know this when we, like let's say when we found, when, when HID first came to the forefront, Nobody talked about all the hours of staff time that would would be uh, 
taken throughout the course of a regular day, aside from after hours. So I think sometimes uh, more conversation and communication has to start down from Trenton on up, and uh, the reality of those discussions really be communicated and conveyed as far as assistance. So um, I don't know, Jimmy, if you, if you have something you'd like to add. Yeah, Pat and Dave, the one thing I would say is uh, in the era of the HIV, and it used to be, you know, way back when before social media was what it is today, uh, you know, if there's something going on, it may end at three o'clock. Now it goes on 24-7 weekend. So if there's something going on um, on social media, kids can't get away from it. And it's really become, and Dave mentioned it too, and Pat, you know this as well, and Deb, you as well, um, the fact that this is now 24-7. So, you know, we're all getting phone calls, text messages, weekends, nights, late at night, and kids are in crisis because of a lot of things that go on in social media that is very hard for us to monitor and control. And I, I just think that's a big shift as well, that it's now in the school and it's all the time. So you really have to be cognizant of it. You have to be aware of it. And it's it's something that's real. And I, again, I, I'm a adults can't handle the social media. I don't know how we have the expectation that our young people can actually uh, handle it and handle it well. Just one man's opinion on social media. I've also noticed um, within the school district is I'm starting to notice a big trend this year in student behavior. And I mean, all the way back down to your pre-K program where um, students, even general ed students, um, pre-K students might be having trouble with going to the bathroom or kindergarten children that are acting much younger than classes before or fights at the high school. Um, do either of you feel that that's what's happening in your buildings? I would say I. the one thing we've noticed is for us at the high school level, and again, I only have two high schools. Uh, the one thing I would say is I think the, the kids getting back in and socializing has been a little bit different. Like when you take a look at the lunchroom situation, it's taken, it took a little while for them to get back into the swing of things. Now, if you remember, kids that are seniors today, the last full year, normal year of school they had is when they were freshmen. So I, I think that's been a little different for everybody. Um, and I haven't, we haven't noticed in our district um, a lot of, you know, more fights than normal or whatever it may be. Uh, but I would imagine at the younger level, the socialization might be something, and I'm sure Dave could touch upon that. I would say certainly, um, you know, we've seen an uptick in in code of conduct behavior um, that goes along with obviously the impact. And as Jimmy said, the last time our seniors were a full year of school was their freshman year. That, that that's a that's tremendous. And even though we're saying it and we're school leaders and we're educators, we can't even comprehend that what that means because each of us has dealt with and continues to deal with um, the fallout of the pandemic in so many different ways you know both externally and internally i would also say and i think it's important since this is uh, you know a program for centenary university that something that all colleges and universities uh should consider is is what's next as far as the role of superintendents and our super our folks in particular programs being trained to be the next incoming wave of superintendents. Uh, you know, Rich Tomko shared earlier about all the retirements. I, I would I would suggest and surmise that there'll be more uh, at all different levels in education. And if there's already a labor shortage and there's already a teacher shortage, soon enough, there'll be a next shortage. And um, I, I, can, I can say uh, that for those who never knew the role of the superintendent, let's just say in the administrative ranks, perhaps maybe at times aspired to be superintendents pre-pandemic. They didn't understand that this is 24-7. I don't know when and where that actually changed, <laughs> but I could tell you that it, it certainly is. Um, and that's and there's no college or university that trains, trains folks for that. But then in that time frame of the height of the pandemic and last school year, if you were a school district like us that were in from the beginning to end and had to change and shift and pivot multiple uh, schedules throughout the day and throughout the school year and contact tracing and now vaccination and all these things, you can see the wear and tear on folks. It's very real. 
And so those admins who might have thought or, or toyed with, hey, maybe down the road, I could be another, I could be a superintendent. I don't know if folks really want to take it on. And honestly, looking in the rearview mirror just for a minute, I, I'm usually somebody who looks out the windshield. I don't look in the rearview mirror. But if I was still an admin working, let's just say for Jimmy in that, in that scenario from 15 years ago, I don't know. I, I don't know. And I think that's what colleges and universities in the state of New Jersey, along with the Department of Education, better be prepared for. And hopefully they're preparing accordingly because this has become a 24-7 um, job to a much greater level in the pandemic prior to than where it was. And now once it's out there, once the horse is out of the barn, so to speak, how do you pull it back in? It's pretty difficult. That's a great segue, Dave, as someone who is getting your advice two years after beginning my superintendency career. What is both of your thoughts on what do this new round of superintendents to replace this void Dr. Tomko spoke about? Other than the 24-7 aspect, what should the schools and universities be sharing with superintendents or what would you share with new superintendents to prepare them for what's coming up next? Boy, that's, a, you know, Pat, that's a great question. And it's, it's, it's really hard because I think, and, and you're going through it now, right? And, and you say to yourself, didn't see that coming. Uh, you know, no matter how many superintendents you talk to have experience, you need to go through the experience yourself. The one thing I would say is you, you really just need to be able to um, pivot, as David said before, because things constantly change, uh, especially with the pandemic and everything that's going on. So you need to be able to, you know, have a team and build a team around you of people that you can trust that you can go to and say, hey, what do you think of this? You know, where do we need to do, what do we need to do and where do we need to go with these type of things? You really need to be collaborative with your team because you can't make every decision by yourself in a vacuum. So I, I think really teaching and training people to be very collaborative with their team and put trust in and understanding that wherever this goes, you're responsible. Good, bad, or indifferent. And it, it, I relate it to coaching too. I take all the losses and I give credit to everybody else for the wins. And I think the idea is just training people to really be able to take a bunch of information, be able to make decisions, and just be able to communicate it and to your community so that there's confidence. And I know that's very vague, but it's, I, I think, the way to go. And to take it from a different angle and to continue on what I, I agree with Jimmy and, and, and Pat to your question and point, it's that colleges and universities have to teach folks that, listen, you have to be prepared for anything and everything. And some of us kind of have that innately. And, I, and again, I had the good fortune of working for and with Jimmy, so I saw that up live and close. But um, that's not in the job description anywhere. And, uh, you know, there's so many other intangibles that went along the way, you know, from salary caps of a little bit more of a decade ago. Imagine that now. So, I mean, to find folks who are willing to be on and be prepared at a moment's notice, especially in this world of social media, that once that email is sent to you or once that text message is sent, whomever it is in the organizational chart gives it to you, it's you. That preparation, that, that, that's, that's, it's a lot, it's cumbersome, and it's, sometimes it's deafening. And uh, we're numb to it now, those of us who have been in it for a decade or more. But uh, I think that's really where colleges and universities have to focus, on how that operates, what is the function of the position. Well, that's probably a, a good way to wrap up the show. I, I want to thank our very special guests, uh, Jim Giancarelli, Dave Mango, and uh, Rich Tomko, uh, sitting superintendents, uh, you know, giving their all every day, uh, along with our doctoral students who curated the show, Deb Grigoletti and, and Patrick McQueenie. You have been listening to WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. 